Well, okay. Let's turn to Psalm number one. Psalm number one. And uh, as I said, I wanted to really go through nine psalms this, this evening. And I'll tell you the reason why. I'm, it's not because I, I'm mad or something like that. Um, it's just that I, I just have a sense of feeling that I want to go through the book of Psalms in about a six-month period of time. Um, and so what I did was I went to figure out how many verses were in the entire book of Psalms and how many weeks is in six months, 26 weeks. So that means we need to cover about 100 verses a night, which is not unusual for our Thursday night Bible studies as, we, as we've gone through some of the other books, you know. So um, I determined that nine, the first nine Psalms are a little over 100 verses. However, I forgot that you probably need a little bit of an introduction to the book so that you can have an idea of the context and the historical setting and, and all that stuff that's going on there. Uh, and just really what it's all about. So that obviously is taking up some time. So uh, we're going to be covering uh, Psalms 1 through 6 tonight. And uh, consequently, we'll probably take an additional week. But then who knows what's going to happen you know, between now and the next six months, we might, you know, be at it for nine months. Uh, but anyways, six months I thought would be a good period of time to spend in the book. So as we begin our study in the book of Psalms, we're entering actually the longest book of the Bible and possibly the most read book of the Bible. And the reason it is read so much is because it deals with this broad spectrum of emotions that we go through with practical ways to deal with those issues. Martin Luther put it this way regarding the Psalms. He said, in the Psalms we look into the heart of all the saints and we seem to gaze into fair pleasure gardens, into heaven itself, indeed where bloom the sweet, refreshing, gladdening flowers of holy and happy thoughts about God and all his benefits. On the other hand, where will you find deeper, sadder, more piteous words of mourning than in the Psalms? In these again, we look into the heart of the saints and we seem to be looking into death, yea, into hell itself. How gloomy, he says, how dark it is there because of the many sad visions of the wrath of God. I think he got it pretty good there. I think his, his, that, that's a great summary of the book of Psalms. Most people are aware that the book of Romans was a very important book for Luther. And indeed, it was. It was in Romans that Luther learned that the just will live by faith. But so was the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms was a very important book for Martin Luther. You see, it was Romans that gave him the basis for developing and posting those famous 95 theses on the door of the uh, Wittenberg Castle Church in 1517, which many say was kind of the start of the Great Re Reformations. It was, uh, the Great Reformation. It was really one of the major sparks that ignited the Reformation. But it was the book of Psalms that gave him the courage to um, declare the truths of the book of Romans fearlessly. In his later years, 
during the traumatic days of the Reformation, uh, he, he came against great opposition. And Luther often became discouraged and depressed. But we're told that he would overcome that depression by singing the Psalms with one of his um, co-workers. In fact, uh, Luther was a, a hymn writer, as, as many people know. His most famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was paraphrased from one of his favorite psalms, Psalm 46. Now, in the Hebrew, this book is called the Book of Praises. It was the prayer and praise book of the temple. It's from the Greek, actually, that we get the word psalm, which is a song sung to the accompaniment of a plucked or stringed instrument like a harp or a lyre. In fact, it's very fitting that David, who could play the harp so skillfully, that when King Saul was distressed by the evil spirit, the spirit would leave and Saul would then feel better again as David played the harp. Um, this same David was also one of the major authors of the Psalms. The Psalms were not written by one person, but actually several um, different people. The most notable, of course, is David, who is called the sweet psalmist of Israel in 2 Samuel um, 23, verse 1. David wrote at least 75 of the Psalms. 73 of the Psalms actually have David's name on them, while Psalms 2 and Psalm 95 are attributed to David in the New Testament, though his name isn't on uh, either of them in the book of Psalms. Asaph wrote 12 of the Psalms. The sons of Korah wrote 10. Solomon wrote 2. Moses, Ethan, and Heman each wrote 1. That leaves 48. So the other 48 are anonymous. They may be from David. We're not sure. Uh, some feel that Ezra may have been the author of some of the anonymous Psalms. With that in mind, knowing that uh, Moses lived around 1450 B.C. and Ezra around 450 B.C. We see a 900 to 1,000 year time span in the writing of the Psalms. In other words, they weren't just all written you know, over a short period of time. 900 to 1,000 years they were um, in the writing. That's a long period of history dealing with the full gamut of, of emotions that one may go through in a lifetime. Again, Psalms is the longest book in the Bible with its 150 Psalms. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible with 176 verses. Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the Bible. Do you know how many verses it has? How many? Two. Two. Good. Close though. Psalm 117 is also the middle chapter in the Bible the very center of the 1,189 chapters from Genesis to Revelation. Psalm 118, verse 8, is the absolute center of the 31,173 verses in the Bible. Psalms is also the most quoted book in the New Testament. Of the 219 Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, 116 of them are from the Psalms. Psalms also contains more messianic prophecies, in other words, prophecies about uh, the coming of Christ than any other Old Testament book 
with maybe the exception of Isaiah. Psalm 90 is definitely the oldest of the Psalms written by Moses, somewhere around 1410 B.C. Psalm 126 is probably the last Psalm written because it describes the Jews coming back from the Babylonian captivity somewhere between 500 and 430 B.C. if Ezra is the one who wrote it. How long do you think it takes on the average to read through the book of Psalms? Anybody venture a guess? The whole book of Psalms in one setting. Any other guesses? About four hours and five minutes uh, on the average to read the entire book of Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms is divided up actually into five books. You know, when we think of, uh, you know, the book of Second Corinthians or, uh, you know, First Corinthians or Romans or something like that, uh, it's, that's an individual book of the Bible. Uh, in the book of Psalms, it's, we actually have five books. Um, and they're divided up um, in chapters. Uh, by chapters, that is. The first book of the book of Psalms is Psalms 1 to uh, Psalm 141. And the reason, we, the reason we know that book comes to an end at that point is because at the end of Psalm 41, you have this phrase, Amen and Amen. And you find that phrase four times in the book of Psalms. And each time it marks the end of uh, a particular set of books. Psalms 42 to 72 is the second set. Psalm uh, 33 to 89 is the third set. Psalm 90 to 106 is the fourth set. And Psalm 107 to 150 is the fifth set. And Psalm 150, instead of ending with Amen and Amen, it ends uh, uh, with uh, a praise to God, basically. So, with that all in mind, a little bit of an introduction, let's get into this prayer and praise book of the temple and see really what God has in store for our lives because there's a lot of stuff here. So, Psalm 1. As we read through this psalm, I want you to note that there are only two ways of life that are contrasted. Not three, not four, just two ways of life. You only have the righteous and the unrighteous, as you'll see here. And that kind of coincides or coincides with what Jesus said. He gave us basically two, op- two, two options, basically. He said, you're either for me or what? You're against me. That's right. So, same thing here. There are two kinds of people, biblically speaking. There are the righteous and there are the unrighteous. There's no middle of the road. You're either righteous or you're unrighteous. Okay. Verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So he's speaking now about the way of the godly, the way of the righteous. Blessed or happy is the man who does not follow down this destructive path that he's uh, laid out here. Doesn't follow in the counsel of the ungodly, doesn't stand in the path of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. As you look at this, you see a, a gradual progression of this person who is sinking deeper into this pattern of sin. At first he enjoys just walking with others who are doing it. Kind of a a casual influence. Then he begins to stand with them or to kind of hang around with them. 
until finally he's sitting with them in fellowship with those that are mocking the things of God. It's as Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now as Christians, we would never do that, right? We would never do that. But what happens when you turn on the television and, and you watch some talk show or some show that is giving you ungodly counsel? Or, or you go and you regularly see movies that glorify sex or foul language or unnecessary violence. Or, or you read books or magazines or, or you visit web pages that glorify these kinds of things. Or even video games that glorify these kinds of things. I'll tell you what it is. It's like walking in the counsel of the ungodly. It's not a good place for us to be if we call ourselves Christians. He says, verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. True happiness is found in obedience to his word as we meditate on the word of God. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The word meditate there means kind of to chew the cud. You know, so, so we're not just to casually read the word. I mean, reading the word is good. Uh, if you read it casually, you know, it's still going to have some, some benefits to it. But he's saying here that we need to take it a step farther. We need to meditate on it. We need to chew on it, if you will. Chewing the cud. Uh, we need to digest it throughout the day. That's what chewing the cud was all about. It was, it was the process of digestion taking place. And so, he says, read it. Meditate on it. Don't just, you know, take a bite and swallow it and forget about it. You know, enjoy it for the moment, but then... You know, walk away from the meal and forget that you had such a good meal. Meditate on it. Chew it really good. Isaiah 55.11 says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So the result of that kind of lifestyle, loving and, and applying the word of God to one's life, Uh, We see that here in verse 3. It says, He shall be a tree like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. In other words, your life is going to be fresh because of the living water that you're taking in. As the unsaved are barren, as they're dry, They should see us as Christians like an oasis in the desert. And we should share with them the living water that is only found in Jesus Christ. And you will produce fruit. You will prosper. Not because of you, but because of Him. That's what will happen when we delight in the law of the Lord and when we meditate in His law or in His word day and night. We're going to be fruitful. 
he talks now to, about the way of the ungodly, verses 4 to 6. He says, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. On the other hand, the ungodly, they're like chaff. And chaff is just that, that worthless part of the grain, the husk of the grain, if you will, that's blown away during the process of the winnowing. The only thing that is left during the winnowing process is the grain or, or the fruit, you might say. And folks, you can't fool God. We can't fool God. He knows who are His. Those who love Him and those who don't. And He will separate the wheat from the chaff, the wheat from the tares, if you will, or the true from the false. So, we have the way of the godly and the way of the ungodly represented here. We all have to ask ourselves what path in life we are traveling. Have we entered through the narrow gate that leads to the path of the godly? Or have we entered in through the broad gate that leads to the path of the ungodly, the one that's headed to destruction? If you say you're on the path of the righteous, then that leads to a few more questions. Do you display evidence of a changed life that authenticates your profession? Are you experiencing God's favor? Are you living a separated life that's distinct from the beliefs and the behavior of the ungodly? Have you made a break from the world? Do you really delight in the Lord and want to obey His Word? You know, those are just some questions that the answer to those questions, I think, reveals the path that we're really walking on. You just can't point to an emotional experience or some mystical feeling. You have to be able to point to what David, or the the writer of Psalm 1 says here in verse 3. Fruit. You have to be able to point to fruit. The authenticity of our faith is proven by the fruit that we produce. Fruit is the test of salvation. That includes a desire to be holy, Christ-like, one who seeks to do good things, one who wants to serve and give and worship. We're not talking about perfection in any of these things, obviously, but a desire to want them and to evidence that we're moving in that direction. So that's Psalm 1. And, you know, each one of these psalms could have probably two or three sermons preached out of them, but we don't have that kind of time. So, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm that points to the kingdom age. A messianic psalm is, is, is a psalm that speaks about Christ, speaks about the coming of Christ, maybe his first coming, maybe his second coming. Uh, but uh, this one speaks about him. And also, according to Acts 40, uh, 4.25, we're told that David wrote this psalm. It's not told us there at the heading of it, but in Acts 4.25, it clearly says there that David wrote this psalm. And you will see that in this psalm is really a conversation taking place between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, in other words. So, let's look first at uh, man's rebellion against God in verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord 
and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So this is, this is the foolishness of rebellious man. He wants to fight against God and, and his anointed, it says there, or the anointed there is, is, an, is a, the uh, Messiah, which is translated Christ in the Greek. So when does this battle take place? When does this fight uh, against God take place? Well, at the end of the tribulation period, I believe, and just prior to the start of the kingdom age. I think that this is a reference to the prelude to the battle of Armageddon. In Revelation 19.19 we read, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And I think that's what these three verses are talking about. This has been the foolish plan of man to break away from God under no one's authority except their own. Because they refuse the truth, God will give them over to a lie in which they will believe the, the lie that, that you know, they've concocted. They, they truly believe that they can win this battle against God. Also notice that they say, let us break their bonds. Look at that verse 3. Let us break their bonds in pieces. Speaking not uh, of just God, but there being plural, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I believe. It's the Trinity that we see emerge from these verses. Now let's look at the response of God. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Now, it's kind of a picture of God sitting on the throne laughing. So you wonder, why does God laugh? Well, you know, it's kind of a poetic uh, representation here. Uh, but I think that it's intended to uh, communicate to us the absurdity of what is taking place here. Uh, his creation, the, the very creation of God, the, the, the people that God Himself created, the ones that He breathed life into and gave freedom, um, they're trying to rebel against Him, their Creator. You know, it's not really a funny kind of a laugh, but it's a deriding sort of a laugh, I think. You see, this is, this is no real battle for God. This isn't a challenge for Him. Because he's just going to just judge them according to his word. Um, Revelation 19.21 says, And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the throne. But we know what that sword is. You know, Hebrews 4.12 tells us that... Uh, um, I'm sorry, not Hebrews 4.12. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that... that um, give it to me, Greg. I'm having a blank here. Yeah, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Exactly, thank you. So, Jesus is just going to speak the Word. You know, there's not going to be any battle. There's not going to be any clashing of weapons. Uh, there's not going to be any bombs, except the bomb of His Word. You know, His Word is going to, uh, you know, take care of His enemies. He's going to speak the Word and they're going to be toast, essentially. 
Now he goes on in verse 6, he says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now here I believe the Father is speaking, telling us that he will set his son on the throne in Zion. This, I think, is the beginning of the kingdom age being spoken of here. He goes on in verse 7, and I think this is Jesus now speaking. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So I think that this is the Son, Jesus Christ speaking. The Lord, the Father, had said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And when he returns, when Jesus returns with his saints to establish his earthly kingdom, he's going to put down man's rebellion. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. We read about that in Matthew chapter 25. The sheep will enter into the kingdom age and the goats will enter hell awaiting the great white throne judgment. But even in the kingdom age, we're told that certain people are going to rebel particularly at the end. But there will probably be some that rebel during the kingdom age. There will be people who enter the kingdom age in their mortal bodies. And they will uh, procreate. They'll have children. And those children will be raised. The difference is going to be that Jesus is going to be here ruling and reigning. And we as Christians are going to be ruling and reigning with Him. But even with that, even with Jesus here personally, and I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work. Is he, is he going to you know, tour the countries and so on and so forth on the earth occasionally so that everybody gets a chance? Certainly, you know, if we have television and satellite and all that stuff still going during the kingdom age. Uh, you know, I mean, there'll be no question about it. Nobody will be able to say, he's a myth. He's here. But even with that, people are going to rebel against him. And so... Uh, and so their rebellion is going to be dealt with. He goes on in verse 10. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. I think now this is the Holy Spirit speaking. He's counseling those. This, this isn't the Son anymore speaking because this person is telling everyone to kiss the Son. So it's not, not the Son speaking anymore. I think it's the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and what is one of the functions of the Holy Spirit? To draw men to Christ. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, hey, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. He's drawing people. He's turning the attention to Jesus Christ. Pointing them in the right direction. And that, I think, is what he's doing here. He's telling those in rebellion to kiss the Son or to pay homage, to worship the Son. If they would continue to refuse to turn to Christ, then they will be judged for their rebellion. They're not going to win, in other words, in this battle against God. And, and for those who come to Christ, those who put their trust in Him, they are blessed. They are happy because they will enter into the kingdom age and then into eternity with their Lord and Savior. And that is truly God's desire, that all 
would come to the saving knowledge of Him. But tragically, many will not. And many will gather in battle against Him. But they won't win, according to this psalm. Psalm 3. This psalm was written during the time that Absalom rebelled against his father David, trying to usurp the throne from him. And as Absalom was coming from Hebron to Jerusalem to take over the kingdom in his revolt, David was fleeing so that no blood would be shed in Jerusalem. David did not want a war to take place in Jerusalem. And it is out of this turmoil that David wrote this psalm. And this is the first psalm that we have a little header to there. It says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So, first of all, let's, let's read about David's trouble and his protection. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. David's troubled by what is happening to him and is crying out to God for help. His enemies have increased. They, they saw David down and they were going to take advantage of that situation. And not only were their numbers intimidating, but apparently their words were, were very disheartening to him. They were telling David that he's... He's only getting what he deserved. And because of that, God was not going to help him. There's no help for me and God. And perhaps David did feel that he was getting what he deserved. Maybe he felt that his sin with Bathsheba and, and the killing of her husband Uriah had brought this upon his life. Or maybe that you know he had been a bad father. You know, Absalom was rebelling against him. Why? Why would a son rebel against his father like this? And as he was leaving the city of Jerusalem, Shimei began cursing David and throwing rocks down upon him. When Abisha saw this, he couldn't take it any longer and he asked permission from David that he might go and cut Shimei's head off. But I think David's response is very interesting in this context. In 2 Samuel 16, 10-11, we read, but the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. David was feeling guilty. He was feeling like he deserved this. At least he was feeling that it was a possibility. So in the beginning, he, he felt that maybe he had brought this situation on himself by his own sin. But then notice verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> but you, O Lord, he says, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Here is where David found his comfort. In the Lord. God was the shield that protected him from danger. God is the one who raised David up and brought in the glory that was due his position as king. 
And God made several promises to David that his throne would never end, that there would be somebody from his family sitting on his throne for eternity. And God is the one who lifts David up. He raises his head so that he can look to the Lord where there's comfort. And you know what? And we, when we realize that God is our shield, when we call out to Him, we can be comforted knowing, knowing that God hears us. When David calls out to the Lord, notice what he is able to do. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? This tells me that David cast his cares and his anxieties on the Lord. And, and since he trusted in God, he was able to rest. He was able to sleep. You know, it's difficult to sleep when you're anxious and, and when you're troubled. Which is why uh, we're to give our anxieties to God. He can handle them. He has big shoulders. He is capable of dealing with it. And as we do this, the result will be peace. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. David started out in despair, and now he is secure in the Lord. He's not going to fear. Even if he's surrounded by 10,000 of his enemies. Why? Because he knows that God is greater than even 10,000 of his enemies. Notice David's prayer, verse 7. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. David ends the psalm with this cry of victory. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Hallelujah. Does that excite you? <laughs> and not just salvation from the penalty of our sins, but salvation from the troubles that we face throughout our lives. In the midst of adversity... The believer needs to trust in God, knowing that deliverance comes from Him. Even when we suffer because of our own bad choices or sin, God is still at work. He's still working together. All things for the good of those who love Him, according to Romans 8.28. God wants to speak peace to troubled hearts. And He wants to calm the tempest of the storms in our lives. So, lean upon Him. Lean upon Him. Don't try to live in your own strength. Entrust yourself to the Lord. And He will see you through. By the way, this word selah, which is the first psalm where this comes up, you see at the end of verse 2, the end of verse 4, and then at the end of verse 8. The word selah uh, is thought to be a musical refrain with the intent of causing the reader to pause at that point and maybe ponder what's been said. So, um, many are they who say of me, verse 2, there is no help for him in God. Now just pause for a minute and think about that. Many are they who say that. 
to me. There are people who have said that to me. You know, people you know that have said it to you. They said, oh, you're just going through a phase. There's no real help for you in God. I mean, they may not have used those exact words, but that's what they meant. You know, there's no real help in God. God doesn't really exist. You know, we die and we're gone. That's it. There's no real help. So think about that for a minute. Ponder that thought. Is there really no help for me and God? And, and you know, you, you can run with that a little bit. And you can say, well, okay, if there is no help for me and God, then what's the point? What's the purpose of my existence? There is no real purpose, right? If there's no God, then there's no real morality. There's no basis for morality. So we can just do whatever we want to. And who's to say? You know, that it's wrong or that it's right. And you could just go on and on and on. with Ponder that, you know. There's no help for him in God. And then, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. Selah. Okay, that's a good point to stop. And think about it. Think about what's being said there. God is a shield. He's the one who lifts up my head. You know, when I'm down, when I'm depressed, you know, when we say that we're down and depressed, you know, it's kind of like the picture of somebody who's just down. They're just looking at the ground. They can't even look up to see the people that are in front of them, let alone look up to heaven to find God up there. You know, when I'm down and depressed, God is the one who lifts up my head. As you know, my circumstances may not lift up my head. My friends may think, you know, that I've lost it and, and they won't lift up my head. But if I look to God, when you look, and if you, you know, you think of God as up, of course, you know, heaven is everywhere, I think, personally. I just think it's another dimension. And so it's not necessarily up, but we usually think of that, you know, when we think of heaven, it's up, right? So if you look up, you look to God, you're all, all, all automatically looking up, right? So look up. You'll be looking, for, you'll be looking at God. And, and you cry out to Him, and He will hear you. From his holy hill, he will hear you. And so you can take it. Uh, you, you understand what's being said there, though. Just pause for a minute. When when you see that sila, it's a good place to stop and start thinking about really what you've been reading and say, Lord, how does this apply to me? You know, I may not be going through this right now, or maybe I am. What are you saying to me through this? It's a good way to use the Psalms. In our devotional time, and use that word selah. Normally, we just pass over it, but stop, consider it, ask God what he what he might be saying to you. Okay, Psalm four. It's thought that Psalm four is actually closely related to Psalm three, also having come from the rebellion of Absalom. Let's read about David's prayer and his challenge. Verse one. Here, oh, to to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. So David's cry for help to God was really based on how the Lord has cared for David in the past. Notice that. Hear me when I call, O God. You have relieved me in my distress. He's pointing back to the past. So now... Since you relieved me then, essentially he's saying, I'm asking for your help again. You know, he, he's, he's going back and he's saying, you've relieved me. So, 
You see, as we look to the past and how God has sustained us, it gives us confidence in the present situations that we find ourselves in and the prayers that we lift up to Him. God wants us to call upon Him. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So we need, first of all, to call on Him. Every day we need to call on Him. Verse 2, How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for Himself Him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to Him. David here is kind of speaking to his enemies. He's kind of rebuking them for taking away his glory or his authority as being king. Um, And essentially, that's what Absalom did. It started with Absalom. Remember when he was undermining David, his father, in in 2 Samuel uh, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 6, we're told, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He was he was usurping the kingship of David. He was trying to draw men um, over to himself, turning David's glory into shame, if you will. Now, others were picking up on this rebellious attitude of Absalom and, and their words were worthless. Their words were false, according to what David said there in verse 2. How long will you love wickedness and seek falsehood? In verse 3, David is telling them that if they don't know who they're messing with, They don't know who they're messing with. After all, David's a child of God. And if they continue down this path, he's going to go and tell his dad. Because he's my father, you know. And God will not only hear his cry, but he's going to defend me, David is saying there. And you know, folks, we too are his children. We too are his children. Adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. And so when we go to him, in humility and repentance, God will hear our cry and He'll respond to our need. And you can be just as confident of that as David is being confident here. He goes on in verse 5 as he counsels himself. And this is interesting. I think this, is, this isn't David talking to others now. He's talking to himself. And notice what he says. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. He's giving himself advice. Sounds like good advice, huh? Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. I I think he's giving counsel to himself in these verses because he himself was no doubt struggling with wanting to take some heads off. You know, uh, Abishai wanted to take Shimei's head off. And maybe David in his heart did too, but you know, something else told David that maybe there was something else going on there. And maybe he deserved what he was getting. But in his heart, I'm sure it was very hard for him to have these people that once supported him now rebelling against him just because uh, Absalom had stolen their hearts. So it was a tough thing for him. And so he reminds himself to not sin in his anger. He was angry. Couldn't deny that. But he told himself, don't sin. Don't sin. But find solace 
in meditation before the Lord. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. He tells himself to meditate on the Lord and be still. You know, sometimes you know how it is, you're kind of fuming inside, you're upset. An injustice has been done or a loved one has been hurt or somebody has said cruel things to you that are not right and, you know, you're angry and you're seething inside. David says, be angry, but don't sin. In other words, be careful how you express that anger. Be angry and don't sin. So what else should you do? I mean, you should oh, just hold it in. Oh, you know. And of course, the psychologists are telling us that you know when you suppress your anger, when you um, you know deny it or something like that, that's not psychologically healthy. And maybe maybe that's true. So what's the alternative? If I can't express my anger, if I can't vent my anger, if that would then cause me to sin, what's the alternative? He says, meditate on the Lord. And be still. And then, he says, to offer the sacrifices of righteousness. What are these sacrifices of righteousness? David tells us in Psalm 51, verse 17, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. What does that mean? Well, I mean, he needed to entrust himself to the Lord for sure. But, you know, uh, we need broken and contrite hearts. You know, when we start thinking that we're the only ones who are right and the ones who are wronging us are the only ones who are wrong, we're wrong about that, aren't we? It takes two to tango. It takes two people to fight, not just one. It takes two people to have a disagreement, not just one. And so, sometimes what we really need to do is say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sin, a broken and a contrite heart. Get right before the Lord yourself. Remove the log out of your own eye. Then maybe you can help your friend or your enemy remove the speck out of his. But it's an interesting thing. You know, when we approach conflict with pride, with anger, with, I'm going to tell him a thing or two, what does that do? Does it solve the problem? Seldom. Never. Really. You know, it just escalates it, right? But if we approach it with a contrite heart, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, but much better chance of getting a positive result. Maybe not immediately, but over time. When you respond in kindness to the evil that is being done to you, the escalation stops. God says that he does not despise this broken and this contrite heart. And then he knew that he needed to entrust himself to the Lord. So, here's, this, here's, the, here's the, the, the path. Stop sinning. Meditate before the Lord. Present your brokenness and your contriteness to the Lord and then entrust yourself to Him. Those are the keys to keeping our anger when we're being attacked from getting the best of us. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. Exactly. Exactly. 
Now notice David knows where relief is coming from. Verse 6. He says, There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Now he's, he's responding here to, to a cynic. You know, the cynic is saying, Who will show us any good? There, he says, There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Notice how he responds to this cynical attitude. He goes on and he says, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increase. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So, who, the question is, who's going to show us any good? What's the answer? God is going to show us good. That's right. The Lord is going to lift up His countenance upon us. For the unsaved, no hope. No goodness that they can look forward to. But for the saved, the light of God shines down upon us and puts gladness into our hearts. No matter what happens in prosperity and in poverty, in good times and in bad, God still puts that joy in our hearts. The end result is rest and peace because there is true joy that is not dependent upon circumstances, but it's found in the Lord. Paul said in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, when you lie down in peace, it leads to restful sleep. Because of our trust in the Lord. When you lie down in turmoil, it, it doesn't lead to restful sleep. It leads to unrestful waking. So peace, you know. And none of us here have any reason for not getting a good night's rest. If we're trusting in the Lord, right? So make verse 8 a promise that you claim for yourself tonight before you go to bed. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The cure for insomnia. The Lord. Psalm 5. John Wesley said, Give me 100 men, I care not whether they be clergy or laity, who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I will shake this world for Christ. I think Wesley may have had this psalm in mind when he wrote that. Give ear to my words. Well, to the chief musician, with flutes this time, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning, I will direct it to you and I will look up. So David prays in the morning. And once again, he's praying in this psalm and his prayer is full of emotion. And again, praying in the morning. I believe that the morning is a great time to spend in prayer. How important it is to start out your day with the right focus. The Lord. The Lord is our focus. A prayer of looking up to God 
And asking Him to direct our steps. To commit each day to Him. Asking the Holy Spirit to direct our day uh, and, and that we would be sensitive to His leading. Now, as I mentioned on Sunday, maybe the morning isn't the best time for you to have your quiet time. Your you know devotional time. But I do believe that all of us should begin our day with prayer. Even if it's brief and to the point. You know, when you sit down before your your breakfast or your cup of coffee, whatever. Spend some time in prayer. It doesn't have to be a long time. Just say, Lord, be with me today. Direct me today. Help me today to live for you. Help me today to shine for you. When I go to work today, help me to be a blessing to the people that I work with. Help me to be a light that shines. And you know, you you make up your own prayer, but but I believe it's, it's important. The length isn't as important as what's in the heart. And certainly there's no reason that we shouldn't be praying all day long, right? Uh, Thessalonians says, pray without ceasing. And so we need to be in an attitude of prayer. We need to be in a, in a place in our hearts and in our minds that when things happen, we're ready to pray. Whether, you know, it's to say, oh, thank you, Lord, for whatever it was. Or, Lord, you know, Help me with this answer that I need to give this person that's giving me a hard time right now. Or whatever, you know. So now David responds to the evil around him. Verse 4, he says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me... I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. So, to me, this is, this is a real comfort for the godly. Maybe you too have your heart filled with distress when you look around you and you see the evil that surrounds you. It's a distressful thing. It's something that really kind of makes you feel sick at heart. But in this, I think there's comfort too. The comfort comes from the knowledge that you're on God's side. God hates the evil too. It makes him sick to look on all of the evil in our world today. Evil may prosper now among many but it won't forever there's coming a day when God will bring an end to all the evil in the world and to all of those who practice evil but verse 7 says the righteous will enter into his presence and in the meantime God will show us what he wants for us and I love that lead me O Lord verse 8 in your righteousness because of my enemies Make your way straight before my face. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. He doesn't say, Lord, show me how to to whip my enemies. (laughs) Show me how to get the best of them. But lead me, he says, in your righteousness because of my enemies. In other words, I want to live a righteous life. I want to live a godly life in front of my enemies. So that they won't have anything that they can point to. Make an accusation. 
against me or against God. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my sins. Make your way straight before my face. In other words, show me the way you want me to go. You know, not a crooked path, (laughs) but a straight one, Lord. Show me the way. Make your path, your way, straight before me. In other words, help me to see it clearly. I need signs. I need road signs. They help me get from point A to point B. Now initially, after you've gone that path several times, you can do it without the signs, right? But, you know, when my directions on my you know, bus manifest say, pick up this person at such and such an address on this street. If I don't know where that's at, I need directions. And, you know, street signs are helpful. You know, some of these streets here in Kalelum, the signs have, you know, gone bye-bye. <laughs> and so you're not quite sure what the name of the street is, unless you know it well. You just have to be a good old boy. That's right. Or you go to God and ask Him to make His way, His path straight before your face. And He will do that. Now David prays for justice for the wicked and God's blessing on the righteous. Verse 9, he says, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. David has some strong things to say here about those who practice evil. Now, many Christians today want to call for the destruction of their enemies, like David did. You know, God rained fire down on them. The difference is that David was an Old Testament saint who was living under the law. Certainly, grace was in play during David's time, but only for those who repented of their evil and sought the Lord. If if there was no repentance, there would be no grace. And David sought the judgment of God. But we are are not living under the law. We are New Testament saints. We are living under grace. And so we are not to call for our enemies to be destroyed, but to pray for them. We're, We're to ask God to bless them, to open their eyes, to help them to see. We're to pray them out of the grips of Satan so that they can be free. We're not to pray for their destruction. See the difference? Luke 6, 27-28, Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. That's a different, different kind of response than a typical response that you would see in the Old Testament towards your enemies. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 12 said something very similar to this. Let me just turn there real quickly and read it to you. Paul in Romans 12, verse 17, says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, you may not be able to live peaceably with all men, but as much as it depends on you, do so. The AA folks would say, keep your side of the street clean. Repay no one evil for evil. Okay, I already read that. 
verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So if there's going to be any, any vengeance, God is going to exact it, not you or I. Therefore, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And that's an expression that meant you're going you're gonna to heap shame upon them. He's not saying you're going to actually you know, pour coals of fire on their head. Um, it's sort of a euphemism. And then in verse 21, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So that's, that's the way we do things in our time now. Verse 11. Uh, he goes on, he says, But let those who rejoice, I'm sorry, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. So as Christians, there should be a joy in our hearts and a smile on our face because we're on God's side. And that's good. He's defending us. He surrounds us with a shield. He's protecting us from our enemies. And in knowing that truth, should we keep silent? Should we keep silent? Of course not. We have the gospel. We have the good news. And we should shout for joy, letting the whole world know the wondrous things of God. Look at the list of benefits. Gladness, joy, protection, rejoicing, blessing, God's favor. These are the things that belong to the one who seeks the Lord. What a great way to start your day. Putting things in the proper perspective and asking God for direction. That's what uh, David has done here in this psalm. Okay, last psalm. Psalm 6. To the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. So this is the first of what are called the penitential psalms. As David is repenting and crying out for God's mercy to come upon his life. There are seven of these penitential psalms. Psalm 6, uh, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143 are psalms of repentance or penitential psalms. David is going through both physical and emotional sufferings and his enemies still want him dead. And as you read this, it seems that David believes that he's being chastened for some sin or something that he has done to displease the Lord. So let's look first at his agonized plea. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. David's cry to God is to is to put an end to this chastisement because he doesn't think that he can take anymore. His whole body ached. It's like signs of a sickness. If you read this, it sounds like he's sick. You know, his, his body was aching. He knows he's, he's being rebuked and chastened, so he seeks God's mercy to come upon his life, which you know, is really an admission of guilt of some sort. You know, it's good to go before the Lord to make sure your heart is right instead of making excuses for your sin. You know, we live in a society that has perfected the art of making excuses why we broke the law or why we did something wrong. God is not looking for excuses. 
He's looking for repentance. A change in heart. A change in direction. And you know, we see it when we see our kids fighting. You know, they're bickering back and forth. You know, you know why did you hit Johnny? Because he hit me first. Well, okay, say you're sorry. Why should I say I'm sorry? He hit me. That's the only reason I hit him. Well, say you're sorry anyways, because you shouldn't have hit him back again. And, and, and we, you know, we, we know to give that kind of advice to our kids, but what about when we do it ourselves as adults? One person shouts, the other person shouts a little louder. One person pushes, the other one pushes a little harder. Isn't that the same thing that we were correcting our kids for? And yet we're doing it as adults, but we're saying, we're justified. We're justified. Because they started it. It's childish. It's sin too. Yeah. So, go before the Lord. Make sure your heart is right instead of trying to make excuses. God is, isn't looking for excuses. He's looking for repentance. He's looking for a change in heart. He's looking for a change in direction. And David is indicating that by calling, he's indicating that by calling on God to show him mercy. He's asking for God to not give him what he deserves. That's what mercy is. Not getting what you deserve. So, by asking for mercy, he's actually acknowledging his guilt for something uh, and, and he's indicating his repentance. At the same time, we know that God's chastening hand is not primarily a mark of his displeasure, but it's a mark of adoption. That's right. That's right. Hebrews 12.7 makes that clear, that chastening is evidence of our adoption. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? When God corrects us, it doesn't feel pleasant. But it is good. And it's for our good. God chastens or he disciplines those he loves. You see, it may not be something that we did wrong, but it may be something that God is preparing us for that he knows is coming into our lives in the future. And so he's chastening us now. He's disciplining us now. He's preparing us. Just as an army goes into preparation before they go into battle, they're learning discipline. They're learning how to follow orders. They're learning how to hang tough in the difficult times. So sometimes God takes us through those difficult times, not because we've done something wrong, but to prepare us for something that's coming in the future. Verse 3 says, My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Does that sound like some place you've been before? I know I have. As you're going through these dark times, it seems like they're never going to come to an end. God seems distant. It seems like He's not answering your prayers. What should you do? Walk by faith. And fall back on the things or the truths that you know of God. That He loves you. And that He'll never leave you or forsake you. And so on. And in a few verses, we will see David's response to this time of, of blackness of soul in his life. It goes on in verse 4. He says, Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me uh, for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? Now David is saying that if he dies, then how can he represent God and praise Him? 
If he was alive, he could tell others of the glory of God, but in the grave, he's silent. Notice he says, in death there's no remembrance of you. What does he mean by that? Well, it would be wrong to take these agonized words of David as evidence that there's no life beyond this life. And some people have actually done that. For in death there is no remembrance of you in the grave who will give you thanks. Some would say there's no life. Some would say, uh, teach from this the doctrine of soul sleep. But you know what? I don't think that's what we're supposed to take from this. Especially when you compare it with the whole Bible. The statements in the New Testament about life beyond this life indicate that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is a consciousness in death, the death of this body. The life continues in the spirit. And, and so David is just a little... He's got things a little messed up here. All right. In his, I think it's partially because of, of his uh, agony that he's going through. Earlier, when he talked about the son that he had, the first son that he had through Bathsheba, he indicated to us there that he believed that when he died, he was going to go be with that son. You know, he said, I, he, my son can't return to me, but I will go to him. So he did have a sense of consciousness beyond the grave. But in this particular place, I think he's uh, just a little you know, confused and, and he's agonized over it. Uh, and the Old Testament has a sort of a shadowy understanding of the world beyond. Sometimes it shows a clear confidence like Job uh, in 19 verse 25 and sometimes it, it has the uncertainty that David shows here. Second Timothy 2.10 says that Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The understanding of the afterlife was murky at best in the Old Testament, but Jesus let us know more about heaven and hell than anybody else could. Jesus could do this because he had first-hand knowledge of the world beyond. That's where he'd come from, right? David's point isn't, isn't to present a comprehensive theology here of the world beyond. He is in agony. He's fearing for his life. And he knows that he can remember God and he can give him thanks now. He doesn't have the same certainty about the world beyond. So he asks God to act according to the certainty that he does have. Lord, I want to be able to thank you and, and give you praise now. And we can do the same thing. We don't always know why things are the way they are. But when we're in that situation. We just need to fall back on the things that we do know. And one of the things that we do know is we're supposed to trust in God. And we're supposed to praise Him even in the hard times. Verse 6. I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Inwardly, David was devastated. His life was in turmoil. And now what was taking place inwardly is manifesting itself outwardly with this groaning and this weeping and with these many tears. He is completely broken at this point. I've been there before. Perhaps you have too. David may have put down his pen at this time. And as God answered his prayer, I think the following came flowing 
forth from him. Verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. His focus has changed now from the situation that he was in to the Lord. And when you turn your eyes to the Lord, you'll always get new perspective. That's what he had here. God will answer his prayer and will fight for him. After praying, his body may have been healed of the affliction that he was suffering at this time. And I think like David, that's what we have to do. We have to fall into the arms of the Lord. For his mercies are new every morning. Remember what David said in Psalm 3-4, I cried to the Lord with my voice. And he heard me from his holy hill. It was out of that trust in God that he could rest without fear. That he could get a good night's rest. I don't know about you, but when my conscience is clear, it's a lot easier for me to get a good night's rest. Praise God for the forgiveness of sins, which gives us a clear conscience. So what are some of the lessons that we've learned tonight? Let me go through them quickly with you. Psalm 1. Let's stay away from the counsel of the ungodly and let's walk in the counsel of the Lord found in the Word of God. Psalm 2. You can't win any battle against the Lord. The only way to be happy and blessed in this life and the next is to surrender your life to the Lord. Psalm 3. When we realize God is our shield and we call out to Him. We can be comforted knowing that God hears us and as we give our anxieties to God, He will give us His peace. By the way, Philippians 4 has a couple of verses in there that address that as well. Psalm 4. For the unsaved, there's no hope. But for the saved, the light of God shines down upon us and puts gladness into our heart, no matter what happens in prosperity or in poverty, in good times and in bad, God still puts that joy in our hearts. Psalm 5, as we seek the Lord every day, God promises us gladness, joy, protection, rejoicing, blessing, and His favor. And finally from Psalm 6, when we confess our sins, and ask God for His mercy. He will heal us. He will cleanse our conscience. And He will give us a confidence to serve Him again. Praise the Lord. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for Your Word tonight. Uh, thank You for the tremendous comfort and hope that we find in these Psalms. We look forward to our continued study in this book. Help us, Lord, to keep you front and center. Help us to ever place our trust in you, no matter what the circumstances around us. Help us to look to you and to be filled with your peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.